this year. Time Magazine ran a cover story entitled Beyond He or She, How a New Generation is Redefining the Meaning of Gender. And in the article, Time interviewed dozens of people around the United States about their attitudes toward sexuality and gender. Many people said that they believe that both sexuality and gender are less like a toggle between male and female and more like a spectrum that allows for many, even endless, permutations of identity. Facebook, for instance, has about 60 different options for users' gender. The dating app Tinder has about 40. Some children's clothing companies have even begun to discontinue the use of boys' and girls' labels. Advocates of what have become known as gender equality argue that a person's gender is a complex interrelationship between a person's body, their experience of their own bodies, and how they choose to express themselves to the world. And while gender has been increasingly controversial for some time now, it gained a lot of momentum, I think, when Diane Sawyer interviewed Caitlyn Jenner in April of 2015, who was formerly known as Bruce Jenner, and then Vanity Fair put Caitlyn on the cover of their magazine as well. And then in January of this year, Caitlyn underwent gender reassignment surgery. And then beyond all of this that's happening, even children are being allowed to define their own gender themselves. Last year, CBS News ran this story, and I want you to just watch. This month, New York City enacted rules allowing transgender people to use the bathroom of their choice in city facilities. Similar laws are being debated around the country as the transgender movement pushes for greater protection. And while the transgender community is finding a growing voice in popular culture, its members are still widely misunderstood. A new book, Raising Ryland, chronicles one family's journey parenting a transgender child who's already facing a major hurdle. John Blackstone shows us how the family hopes its story will raise awareness. Not long after her first birthday, Ryland Whittington's parents, Jeff and Hillary, learned their child was profoundly deaf. It wasn't until doctors put in cochlear implants that Ryland was able to hear for the first time. You hear that? For a while there, we didn't know Ryland would be able to talk or hear or just communicate. Ryland did learn to speak, but what she had to say didn't make sense to her family. Give my sister and I Ryland. started saying, I'm a boy. And at the time, we just thought it was cute. It was a phase. I thought maybe I would have a, a tomboy. It was around three that we started to hear it, but around four years old was when it got very strong. Jeff and Hillary struggled to understand, Jeff especially. You were trying to avoid it? I was avoiding for a while. I knew that Rylan was going to have a difficult life with the cochlear implants, or at least that's what my perception was. So to add something on top of that, I just couldn't, I couldn't accept it. I couldn't picture it. I'm sure what a lot of people can't believe about your story is that at three years old, a little girl can say, I'm a little boy. We could have ignored it, and we could have pushed it away, and and said, no, you're a girl, and, and fought it. Well, we did. 
And we did. <laughs> For the first but, time. But. I, but it became so persistent. They say Ryland demonstrated the key markers that doctors and psychologists look for in determining if a child is transgender. At the time, like so many people, Jeff and Hillary didn't get what it meant to be transgender. Now they do. Lots of ball. This is eight-year-old Ryland today. Over the fence. After much research, counseling, and soul-searching, Jeff and Hillary say they came to the inescapable conclusion that Ryland's gender identity did not match the sex on her birth certificate. So at age five, Ryland began living as a boy. When you, when you see pictures of yourself when you were three and four years old, does that seem strange now? Kind of. Weird. Seems a little weird. Yeah. Ryland remembers how he refused to wear clothes made for girls. It was a little way of showing my mom and dad that I was a boy. What makes you so strong, so determined? I just had a weird feeling that I wanted to be a boy. From the time you were very young? Yeah. This is just as likely to be hardwired as sexual orientation. It's not a choice. Dr. Steven Rosenthal is researching the long-term outcomes of medical treatment for transgender youth in a study funded by the National Institutes of Health. There is no reason to believe that transgender people haven't been around since people have been around, just like uh, any other variation in, in human biology. Rosenthal says treatment is crucial because an alarming 41% of transgender people attempt suicide. But new research in the journal Pediatrics found that children who have socially transitioned to the gender with which they identify had normal levels of depression and anxiety. We have seen so many kids who have come into our practice, like Ryland, um, who have fully socially transitioned, and family after family tells us that as soon as they enable their kid to do this, everything turned around. When you were researching and seeing that attempted suicide rate, 41%, 41%. what was that? Awful. It was horrible. Awful. You know, would we rather have a living son or a dead daughter? And, you know, we weren't willing to play with that statistic. We'd rather have a living son. What are you guys doing? We're making a cake. I'm not kidding when I say that the child changed overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, he was so proud all of a sudden and just so happy and just felt so comfortable. And you could just see him ease up. There's people who blame you. Say, you did this to him. It would never be something that I would push on my child. In certain ways, it is and, and, and will make Ryland's life a little bit harder. And I don't want my child's life to be any harder. There are decisions ahead, including whether to eventually give Ryland male hormones. It's a little while before puberty sets in now, but you've got to be thinking about that. You know, thankfully, there's puberty blockers, which allow us to delay the onset of puberty for a period of time. I think it is really important to note that that we haven't done anything that isn't reversible. Jeff and Hillary are sharing their story because they want Ryland to live in a world that accepts him. Hey, Dada. What? Know how you made that tunnel? Hopefully we just plant the seed of little conversations all over the world. People can just start understanding this more. And there's so many more people who are willing to go public with it and who are coming out and trying to help this world to understand. So I think we'll get there. We'll get there. For CBS This Morning, John Blackstone, San Diego. What do you think? What do you make of that? What are we to make of that? You know, those parents, 
don't know about you, but they seem like very bright, well-intentioned people to me. They seem to genuinely want the best for their child. They seem, they seem happy. The, the child seems happy. Doesn't that say something about the rightness of the decision that they've come to? Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I want you to, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And I want to talk to you first, biblically and theologically, about gender, and really about all issues of sexuality this morning that, that we've covered in this series. And then I want to talk to you pastorally at the very end. So at the beginning, I want to talk biblically and theologically, and then I want to talk to you pastorally at the very end. And before we read this passage, let me tell you why we're reading it. I want you to see something again that I've told you before, at least in part, okay? Here it is. You can write this down, make a note of this, however you want to do it. History is a tale of two kingdoms and two gospels. So history is a tale of two kingdoms, each of which has their own gospel. Now, a little context before we read Genesis 11. I'll explain what I mean about history being a a tale of two kingdoms with two gospels. But let me just give you a little context. The first two chapters of Genesis starts with a description of a world that we have never known. We've never known it. And we could only dream about. A world in which everything worked. Everyone lived in harmony. There was no racism. There was no misogyny. There was no death. There were no mass killings. There was no sexual abuse. None of those things were present in the world in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And what made the world work was that God was the king of that world. And he treated his subjects, Adam and Eve, he treated them with extravagant goodness and love. Even in telling them, don't eat the fruit from that tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even that was part of his goodness and his love. Now, when you hear or read the phrase, like if you ever come to church and you hear me say the kingdom of God, or if you read something and read it and it says it talks about the kingdom of God, that's what it's talking about. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, all right? That's the kingdom of God. That's what's being referred to. A perfect world. I don't know, have you ever heard the word shalom? Shalom means wholeness. It means peace, harmony. It means, uh, it means to, be, to exist in complete wholeness and contentment, psychologically, physically, socially, emotionally, intellectually, in every way, all right? That's the kingdom of God in chapters 1 and 2. But then... In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobey God's command not to eat from the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the world, the perfect world that he created, blows up. Why? Why does it blow up? What's the big deal about eating this fruit? Well, by eating the fruit, they were rejecting God's kingship over their life. They were like, we don't want you as our king. We want to be our own rulers. We want to make our own morality about everything. And God allows them to do that. And the tremors from that explosion are still felt in 2017. No more shalom. The consequences were and still are massive. Pain and death and sickness and chaos and confusion and disharmony. So, Genesis 1 and 2 describe the kingdom of God. Genesis 3 through 11, go ahead and put that slide up. Genesis 3 through 11 describe the beginnings of life after the kingdom of God, all right? And that section in Genesis chapters 3 through 11 culminates in the passage that we're going to read this morning, 
And what you're going to see is that this marks the beginning of another kingdom called the kingdom, we'll call it the kingdom of man. All right? Chapter 11, verse 1. Let's read. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then, and, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, in the interest of time, I want you to just notice maybe the way that I accentuated it, that the word that is the most important word in this passage is repeated twice, and it's the word ourselves. And it's repeated twice intentionally to help us see what this city was to be about. That city was intended to be the capital city of the kingdom of man, a place where, where we, men and women, could make a name for ourselves. It'll be our city, not God's city. It'll be the capital of our kingdom, not God's kingdom. And we will do things our way, and we will make our own moral laws. That's what the kingdom of man was supposed to be like. Now, if we were were to read on, we would see that out of concern for the rate that evil would grow and spread, and what they would do to each other, God foils their plan. Basically, imagine if the internet were a physical, tangible city. That's what this city named Babel would look like. And so God foils their plan. He gives them multiple languages. And he spreads them out all over the known world at the time. So that's Genesis chapters 3 through 11. Chapters 1 and 2 describe this perfect world, the kingdom of God. Genesis 3 through 11 describe... The beginnings of the kingdom of man. But the question is this. Will the world ever return to the kingdom of God? Or is that lost forever? Has God given up on us? Is the the kingdom of God lost forever? Or will he intervene and bring it back? And he answers that very question in the very next chapter. Chapter 12. Look at chapter 12 verse 1. God calls a guy by the name of Abram. And he says to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Get a sense of God's heart. Yeah, get a sense of his heart. He wants to bless. That, that's his heart, okay? Now, I know it's not right there on the surface for you to see. I know, it's, I know it's not really easy to see. But were you to read the whole of the Bible, you would learn that this was the moment that God promises that the kingdom back in cha- chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis that was blown up by Adam and Eve's sin, that he's going to rebuild his kingdom. That's what this is about. He's going to rebuild his kingdom. Now, notice he uses the word bless or blessing over and over. And he says, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. That is a cryptic reference to the Messiah, Jesus, through whom God would reconcile all of the nations back to himself through the cross and ultimately one day still in the future, reestablish that 
perfect world, that kingdom of God. And the rest of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 12 on, is the story of God working to reestablish his kingdom, while on the other hand, the kingdom of man works to stop him every step of the way. First, by trying to do everything possible to make sure that the Messiah gets killed before he's ever born, and then of course killing him on the cross. But the Messiah, the king, is greater than even death, and he is raised again from the dead. So history is a tale of two kingdoms, the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. All right? Now, here's the thing. If each of those kingdoms, if each kingdom had their own elevator speech, do you know what I mean by an elevator speech? It's like if you were standing in an elevator with someone and you had to describe, you had to say, just during the few seconds you were in the elevator, here's my philosophy of life. That's what an elevator speech is, right? If each of these kingdoms had their own elevator speech, like you could call with it, you could call it their gospel. That would be maybe another way to put it. You know, how do we live life? How do we think life is best lived? What do we think is the best way to approach life? Here's what each of them would say. The kingdom of man would say, Life is liberation from the creator and the rejection of all of the creators, all of the creation's structures. That's what the kingdom of man would say. Like, in other words, if we could just get rid of the idea of God, if we could just kill God, get rid of his ridiculous, antiquated notions of morality, we'll finally be free to live life to its fullest. That's the kingdom of man. On the other hand, the kingdom of God would say, well, exactly what Jesus preached. Life is reconciliation with the creator and living under his good reign and rule. So you've got two kingdoms with two opposite, very opposite gospels warring against each other throughout history. Man, I love history. I love, uh, I love sports. I love the World Series. I love what's happening. I love baseball. I love basketball. All those things are great. I love you know, events of world history. I like current events, politics. All of that stuff is fascinating to me. But that's all the little stuff. Step back. The big picture is two kingdoms warring against each other. That's history. That's what it's about. All right? And both of those kingdoms have their own gospels. One says the best way to live life is to get rid of God. The other, and, and, and all of what he says is right, get rid of his morality. The other says life is to be reconciled to the creator and to live under his good reign and rule. That will bring shalom to the world, right? Okay. Now, Here's how this applies to the series that we're in, and really really all areas of sexuality, certainly gender, but all areas of sexuality that we've discussed so far. And I can't emphasize how important this is. Each of these two kingdoms has their own laws about sexuality. Each of these two kingdoms have their own laws about sexuality. Now, let me show you. Let's go back to the kingdom of God. Chapters 1 and 2. What does the kingdom of God have to say about sexuality? I've pulled these verses out for you. As it relates to gender, look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. We'll put it on the screen. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. I'd like for you to read the last phrase with me. Male and female, he created them. Now, you understand the significance of that, right? The kingdom of God, two genders, male and female, both expressing something of God's 
image. Okay? Now, the book of Genesis was never intended to be a science, uh, a science book. It doesn't describe the differences in the chromosomal makeup of men and women. It doesn't describe the differences in our brains or body shapes. It just says man and woman. And then throughout the rest of the Bible, that's how people are referred to as either man or as woman. Now, one other thing I want you to see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve. So the man named his wife, the woman, Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. So how were the sexes defined? The woman had the capacity to birth a child. Adam did not. The man didn't. So gender was determined by their capacity to reproduce. Now, let's look at marriage. Chapter 2, verse 24 of the book of Genesis. God says, that's why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. What do we see here? Well, again, we see two genders. Man and woman, man and wife. We also see that reflected in the words father and mother. Then we also see opposite genders in marriage. And then we also see in this, we said this earlier in the series, that we see sex as the sign of marriage. It's not the way into marriage. It's not the thing that happens during uh, a relationship prior to marriage. It is the sign of marriage, okay? So let me just summarize the kingdom of God's view of sexuality like this. Gender, male and female. Gender fluidity, no, it's static, and gender determined by God via reproductive capacity. Marriage, heterosexual only. Sex, the sign of heterosexual marriage. Okay? Now, what's the result of that structure? What's the result? Well, for approximately 2,000 years, it worked very well, I would say. People could determine if you were a boy or a girl the minute you came out of the womb. The OB-GYN could look at an ultrasound and say, hey, see that? It's a boy. Very easily. People get married. They have children. The children looked at dad. They called him dad. Dad's pronoun was always he. They looked at mom, and she was always mom. Mom's pronoun was always she. Applications were very easy to fill out. Male, female, check. There was no fill in the blank. What was the result? Let me say it this way. There was There was order. That's one of the marks of the kingdom of God. It was order. Now let's look at the kingdom of man's view of sexuality. Remember that the kingdom of man's gospel is this. Life is liberation from the creator and the rejection of creation's structures. So let's strip away all that God has set up and let's make our own world. Well, what would that sexuality look like? I would argue it looks very much like the world that we live in today. Gender. Depends upon who you ask. Facebook says there's 60 genders. Tinder says there's 40. Some say there are endless numbers of genders. Depends on who you ask. Gender fluidity. It's fluid and is determined by the individual's feelings of what they should be. Marriage, heterosexual and homosexual. Sex, marriage isn't required. Heterosexuality isn't required. Let me ask you, what are the results of this structure? Well, pregnant couples, forget holding a gender reveal party. You won't know the child's gender until the child determines it. 
I mean, and what do you get? Uh, listen to this. This is, this is a category. I don't, I'm sorry if that sounds like I'm making fun. I'm not making fun. But here's a category that some people have come up with. What do you get? A trans misogyny constrained baby. What do you get that baby for uh, a birth, you know, a, a birthday party? What do you get them? And then your ultrasound? Well, the OB-GYN looks and he says, come over here. You see that? See that? It doesn't mean anything. Dad might be male for a while and then become female, but have you keep calling him dad, but he might also change his pronoun to she. Let me say it this way. The result is chaos and confusion. And that's the mark of the kingdom of man. Now, in some ways, what I'm going to say next is obvious, but it's still worth saying. Understand this. Your view of sexuality will be determined by the kingdom in which you trust. Your view of sexuality will be determined by the kingdom in which you trust. And it's really that simple. Now think about it. Whom do you trust the most to set up the world and to set up a a, a sexuality? Do you trust God most or do you trust man most? Let me just give you this. Think about this. Think about the kingdom of God's view of sexuality. If people operated according to the kingdom of God's sexuality instead of the kingdom of man's, and by the way, I know that that's never happened, but let's, let's, I mean, like it's never happened, you know, throughout history that everybody has operated according to the kingdom of God's view of sexuality. But let's say, just pretend with me that, that people did that. There would be no sexually transmitted diseases. There would be no, no, no more 13-year-old babies with babies. There'd be no pornography. There'd be no sex trafficking. And there wouldn't be any more, uh, well, prepare yourself. Okay, because I'm going to say something here. And I, I said this at the beginning of the series. There are going to be some things that I'm going to say in the series that I don't even particularly feel comfortable saying, but I have to say them because of the culture in which we live. And here's one of them. There wouldn't be... If everybody followed the kingdom of God's view of sexuality, there wouldn't be young teenage girls in Evansville, Indiana, like 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old girls showing up in doctor's offices with fecal incontinence because they've been pressured for sex and in an effort to keep their virginity have decided that anal sex is the way not to lose their virginity. And like some of you are thinking to yourselves right now, well, Jeff's just saying that for shock value. I'm not saying that for shock value. Ask around right here in Evansville. And it is way more frequent and way more common than you know. Those of you who are raising young girls, you need to have some conversations with people to see if what I'm telling you is right. This is common knowledge among teenage girls. I could go on and on. But what I'm trying to say to you is that your view of sexuality will be determined by the kingdom in which you trust the most, including your views on gender. Now, let me throw some objections at the sexuality of the kingdom of God, because I know some of you have them in your mind. And if you don't have them in your mind, there are things that you have heard in other places. Some of these objections. Here's one of them that's often thrown at the kingdom of God's View of gender. Here it is. First, what about the hermaphrodite? 
Like some people believe that the presence of the hermaphrodite defeats the binary views on gender, male, female. Aren't there people, they would say, born with both male and female sex organs? And wouldn't that mean then that there are more than two genders? The answer to the first question, are there people born with both male and female sex organs, is yes. After Adam and Eve blew up the kingdom of God, all sorts of things changed in the world. Cancer and genetic deformities and brain tumors and all kinds of genetic anomalies. One day in the future, the Bible says in the kingdom of God that none of that will ever exist again. But for now, it does. And there are people who are born with both male and female genitalia. But in answer to the second question about doesn't that mean that there is a third gender? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Why? Well, in part because, and I want you to listen to me now, there are no true hermaphrodites in the world. And what I mean by that is people who have both working male and female sex organs. That's why there's never been any cases of self-impregnation. And in addition, even if you did discover a person who has both sex organs that function, it still wouldn't disprove the binary male and female gender structure. That person would just be either a male or female, depending upon the gender of the person with whom they chose to reproduce. So hermaphrodites don't affect the binary idea of gender. And here's an objection that I hear all the time. And I will never understand this objection. People will say, even people within the church will say, the Bible is old school. This is 2017. Okay. The Bible was inspired by a timeless God who was God in the year 500 BC and is God in the year 2017. He built the universe to work in a way that is consistent with who he is. And he didn't change that back in the 1960s because the the hippies decided to have a sexual revolution. Like he didn't say, you know, I think they've got a good point. This is the age of Aquarius. Let me rewire the universe. He didn't say that. By the way, does anybody know what the age of Aquarius was? I have no idea, and I don't think anybody else knows what that was. Okay. Plus, here's the other question. Which parts of the Bible are you going to say are old school and irrelevant And which ones are you going to argue are still relevant? Like, if the kingdom of God's sexuality is old school and irrelevant, is Jesus still the Messiah? Is that relevant? Or is that old school? Are sins still forgiven at the cross? Is that relevant? Or is that old school? And so you see, sexuality is still the way God created it because the God who created the world is timeless. Here's another objection. Some people will say, we're not supposed to judge. Now, let me ask you a question. Where did you learn that? It's not from the Bible. If you walk outside today, right after this service, and someone has stolen your car, I promise you, you're going to want someone to judge that that behavior was wrong. I promise you that. Now, we're not supposed to judge someone's worth On the basis of their behavior, we're not supposed to look down our nose at someone and say, I'm better than you. My value is greater than yours because I do good things. You don't do good things. We're not supposed to judge someone's eternal destiny. But God has certainly told us what is right 
and what is wrong in the scriptures. And we can judge behavior, not people, behavior according to God's definition of right and wrong without ever saying a person is less valuable or that they're going to hell or anything like that. Finally, this. Here's an objection that people throw at God's, the kingdom of God's view of sexuality. They'll say, they'll ask this. What about happiness? Like if someone feels like a woman trapped in a, ma- like a, woman trapped in a man's body, how can we say to that person that they have to live the rest of their life being miserable? Well, here's the thing. There are all kinds of suffering in this life. Like some, some of you have physical illnesses that you're going to live with the rest of your life. Uh, there are people in our congregation who are fighting various forms of cancer right now. They're suffering. There's all kinds of suffering in this world. And it's possible to learn from that suffering. It's possible to find joy in the midst of suffering. It's also possible to be pointed to Christ in the midst of that suffering. And I want you to think about the child. I think his name was Ryland, whose parents are letting her be a boy uh, from the video just a little while ago. Can I ask you something? If you want to ask the question, what about happiness with that child? Listen to this. Just think about this. What's it going to be like in junior high and senior high when the boys find out, when her friends that are boys find out that she or that he has a vagina? How happy will she be? Do you think she'll suffer? Yeah, sure. And when she goes through puberty and gets old enough to date, think she's going to suffer? And when that child gets old enough to make a decision about transgender surgery, You think that'll be difficult? You think they'll suffer? Of course. Either way, that child is going to suffer. But I want you to listen to this. Dr. Paul McHugh was the psychiatrist-in-chief for Johns Hopkins Hospital. He is still the distinguished service professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins uh, University. After doing extensive study on the subject of gender reassignment surgery, the psychiatric department at Johns Hopkins stopped recommending gender reassignment surgery. And I want you to listen to what he says about children. Think about Ryland as you hear this. Studies show that between 70 and 80% of children who express transgender feelings spontaneously lose those feelings over time. 70 to 80%. Also, for those who had sexual reassignment surgery, most said they were satisfied with the operation, but their subsequent psychosocial adjustments were no better than those who didn't have the surgery. The kingdom of God would say, look, maybe it would be better to just, actually, I wouldn't say maybe, it would, say, it would be better to just, just encourage your child. Being a girl is awesome. You express the image of God in a, in a unique way. Be a girl. Do a lot of stuff that maybe people don't think girls do very well. Play baseball. Do whatever. But, but be a girl. It's an awesome thing to be. 
And oh, she might struggle and she might be a tomboy or whatever. But encourage her. Maybe, maybe as she grows up, maybe she'll need to get some counseling. But I'm going to argue that, and the kingdom of God would argue, she's, she's going to suffer in some way in life either way. And she'll suffer more from trying to change gender than she will from staying the gender that she was created to be. It takes extraordinary effort to change how our bodies are designed. And at best, all you could do is paper over it with hormone treatments and cosmetic changes. But as soon as the hormone treatments stop, what happens? The person's natural biology always comes through. We can't remake ourselves according to self-will or even our deepest perceptions. No amount of suppression, no amount of repression can deny what is true of our God-given gender. Now, I'm going to say it again. I've said it a number of times throughout this series. Everything I've said this morning is incredibly unpopular, not politically correct, and by some would be considered intolerant and homophobic. But it's not my job to be popular or politically correct. My job is to point people to the kingdom of God. That's it. So sue me. Call me names. Make fun of me. Call me regressive and ignorant. Tell me I'm part of the problem. Arrest me. I trust in the king, in the king of the kingdom of God. And I believe him to be smarter, timeless, and so always relevant, always current, profoundly good, profoundly loving, and profoundly just at the same time. And what I see and believe about the kingdom of man is what I see in the streets, and what I see in the news, and what I see in social media, and on the internet. Sure, there's some good, but there's a whole lot of pain and misery. And now let me talk to you pastorally. Here's what else I know. Every person who has sex with a member of the same sex tonight. Every cross-dresser who tries on women's clothes today. Every person who struggles with feeling that they're trapped in the wrong body. Every, every person who's gone through gender reassignment surgery. Here's what I know. Jesus Christ loves every single one of them just as he loved me. And he died on the cross for them just as he died on the cross for me too. So why talk about this today? Well, we need to know what God says about these issues. Our kids need to know what God says about these issues. And so for those of you who are here today and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you to let your views on sexuality and your actions be conformed to the kingdom of God. Because look, you can put the sexuality of the kingdom of man, you can put it to beautiful music with beautiful people and pretty uh, beautiful images. But all you're doing is putting lipstick on a pig. Don't let your emotions, don't let someone else's emotions, don't let music, don't let someone else's reasoning or even your own reasoning dictate your views on sexuality. Let the king of the kingdom of God dictate your views. But realize this too. No one's ultimate problem is homosexuality or gender dysphoria. Everyone's ultimate problem is alienation from God. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness through the death of Christ on the cross. And so if you haven't been reconciled to God through Jesus, heterosexual, homosexual, transgender, whatever, do so today. 
And if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been reconciled to God through the cross of Christ, remember the ultimate problem. Love people to the cross. Look past their homosexuality. Look past their cross-dressing. Look past their gender reassignment surgery. You don't have to agree with people to love them to the cross of Christ. Go as far as you can to love people without compromising your faith. And by the way, that's a lot further than many people think it is. Sell a gay person a pizza. Bake them a cake for crying out loud. If you work for the government and the government says that gay marriage is legal, either quit your job or give out gay marriage licenses, but don't make a big fuss about it and make the rest of us look like idiots. Remember the ultimate problem and walk as far as you can with people to point them to the reconciliation that is possible to their creator through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you something. Only Christians humble enough to recognize their own brokenness will be capable of walking with people through struggles that seem very different from their own. You know, most people aren't going to change on the basis of your words. They're going to change on the basis of Christ's love for them as seen in the cross. And replicated in your love for them. Even though you may disagree with them on many different things. Your view of sexuality. Is it dictated by the kingdom of God? Or is it dictated by the kingdom of man? I'm going to challenge you to let your view of sexuality. Be dictated by the kingdom of God and your behavior to over time, none of us are perfect, but over time to become more and more and more conformed to the kingdom of God's view of sexuality. Pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, we bow humbly before you, the king. And as... Many of us here are members, constituents of the kingdom of God because of our belief in Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Lord, I pray for us that you would allow our views and our behaviors to become more and more consistent with how the kingdom of God views sexuality. None of us are perfect, and I would put myself first. I'm not perfect in that area either. And I haven't been perfect throughout the course of my life. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to make my views and behaviors more and more consistent with the kingdom of God. I pray that for all of us. But Lord, I also pray that you would create in us more and more of the mercy and the compassion and the love of the kingdom of God as well. And that we would demonstrate that to people in our world that we disagree with, perhaps, on things. And that we would even learn to love those who may hate us. Lord, for those that are maybe struggling this morning with something that we talked about this morning, maybe it's homosexuality, maybe it's gender dysphoria, maybe it's, you know, their own relationship with someone else sexually outside of marriage. Whatever it is that they're wrestling with, Lord, would you convey to them how deeply you love them? Would you convey to them how deeply you love them? Even in their imperfection, even in their sin, even in their wrongness, even in whatever behavior they're in right now, would you convey? to them that you love them. Lord, would you use us as a body of believers to, to reach people and to walk with them all the way to the point of the cross without ever compromising our faith, our beliefs, that we would walk with people as far as we can to 
take them to the cross just like we've been taken to the cross. We pray these things now in Christ's name.